I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I look at the newspaper headlines from major events in our nation's history. And then I ignore those headlines and find out what else was being printed across the country on the exact same day. If you'd like to know more about any of the stories I tell or see pictures of some of the people and events, join me on the Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed Facebook group. You can find all my sources there as well. For today's episode of the podcast, I decided to go with a huge event, an event that almost everybody around the world knows about even though it happened so long ago. Our major event for this episode happened on the night of April 14th and into the 15th of 1912. This is one of those historical moments where I imagine someone running through the newspaper office in the middle of the night yelling, hold the press, hold the press, the Titanic is sinking. Even though the Titanic didn't sink until 2.20 a.m. on April 15th, 1912, Many newspapers across the country already had the story as their main headline for the day. Friends, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of headlines about the event to choose from, and they all basically say the same thing. But I decided to pick today's official headline from a newspaper that didn't quite get the story right. I'm taking today's major event headline from the Washington Times out of Washington, D.C. The headline reads, Liner Titanic kept afloat by watertight compartments being towed into Halifax, Nova Scotia. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not quite the version of events that I know. More than 100 years ago, communication wasn't nearly as good as it is now, and details often got messed up. In reality, the Titanic struck an iceberg just before midnight on April 14, 1912, Over the next two and a half hours, the passengers and crew experienced terror and horror that most of us will never experience. And then, in the wee hours of April 15th, 1912, the unsinkable ship sank. What was supposed to be a six-day trip from Southampton, New England to New York City became one of the most tragic events in all of maritime history. Depending on which source you look at, the number of passengers and crew aboard the Titanic varies greatly, but it was most likely around 2,500 passengers. Of those passengers, just 700 survived. In 2009, the last remaining survivor of the Titanic passed away at age 97. She'd only been two months old when she was set afloat in a lifeboat. Now, one thing I never learned in history class is that the Titanic wasn't the only ship struggling with that same ice field. Another article in the newspaper on April 15th told of the struggles the Carmania had with the ice. That ship managed to get out, but then received a distress call from the Niagara, a French liner that had multiple holes torn into the bottom of the ship and dents everywhere from the ice. Luckily, the Niagara's crew managed to patch her up enough to get to port. Many fishing vessels got stuck out in the ice too. Now, the story of the Titanic is fascinating, 
and many, many books and documentaries and movies have been made about it. But this podcast isn't about the major headlines. Those are stories you already know. This podcast is about the other stories reported in the newspaper. This podcast is about headlines you probably missed. So let's ignore the Titanic and find out what else was happening around the country on April 15th, 1912. My first story for today comes from the New York Times and it's about something that happened the previous day in a town called Harrington Park, New Jersey. Now, Harrington Park is a small town in northeastern New Jersey. It's about 25 miles from downtown New York City. Nowadays, Harrington Park has around 5,000 residents. That's pretty small. But 100 years ago, Harrington Park was much, much smaller. The 1910 census reported fewer than 500 residents. In a town that size, I'm sure anything that happened was huge. But on April 14, 1912, something happened that put the little town on the front page of not only the New York Times, but hundreds of newspapers all across the country, causing it to share front page headlines with the sinking of the Titanic. The New York Times headline reads, Church Floor Fell, Two Dead, Fifty Hurt. Um, how does a church floor fall? Of course, this headline caught my eye and I had to keep reading the rest of the article. First, I'm going to give you just a little more background. In 1910, the Harrington Park Catholic Church Building Association was formed. The association started holding meetings and mass in different places around town. Then in the summer of 1911, they got some great news. Someone had generously donated land to build a church right there in Harrington Park. With such a small population, I can imagine that this was a huge cause for celebration for their congregation. Construction began and the building started to take shape. They named it Our Lady of Victories. On April 14, 1912, the church was well on its way to being completed, but there was still a lot of work to do. The church decided to hold a cornerstone ceremony and let people have a sneak peek inside the building. Parishioners came not only from Harrington Park, but also from neighboring parishes in New Jersey. The number of attendees is estimated to be between 300 and 400 people. That is a lot of people for a town that has fewer than 500 residents. Because there was still a lot of work that needed to be done on the building, Father Delhanti talked to George Noggle, who was one of the contractors, and asked if it was finished enough to have people inside. George said it was fine, but he later admitted that he thought Father Delhanti wanted to take a few people inside and not hundreds of people. Now, friends, the article described how the floor was secured. Pretend you see me using air quotes around the word secured. The floor of the 40 by 60 foot building was held up by just a few temporary supports and beams. It was in no way finished or meant to support a crowd of that capacity. So when the day arrived for the cornerstone ceremony, all the people met outside at 4 p.m. and watched the laying of the cornerstone. Then the group walked around the outside of the building while the priests blessed the foundation. Last, they entered the building. Now, there weren't pews inside the building yet, so guests were just kind of standing around everywhere. 
Piles of lumber that were waiting to be used became makeshift seats for a few people who didn't want to stand. A few onlookers said that they glanced inside, saw the condition of the floor, and chose, apparently wisely, to stay outside because they didn't trust it. Anyway, once inside, either Father Borgen or Father Delhanti, depending on which source you read, started to preach to the crowd. He barely started speaking when the floor suddenly creaked, and then there were some popping noises, and before anyone knew what was happening or had time to react, the entire floor cracked in half and split right down the center, turning it into a V-shape. The collapsed floor acted like a funnel as it slid people onto the dirt floor of the basement 10 feet below. Remember the piles of lumber people were sitting on? Throw all of that into the mix and you have a major disaster in the making as 300 people and piles of lumber tumble into the gaping hole. People were piled so high that the ones on the bottom began to suffocate. Rescue operations started immediately by those who had been waiting outside, and dozens of victims began to be extricated one by one by one from the rubble. By some miracle, only two women lost their lives in this tragic accident. They were on the bottom of the pile, and rescuers couldn't get to them before suffocation and injuries took their lives. The New York Times reported the names of the women who lost their lives as 43-year-old Mrs. Nicholas Odegon and 27-year-old Mrs. Fritz Elkhart. The article continues on with the gruesome details of injuries of 33 other unfortunate attendees and said that there were at least 20 more that the reporter didn't get the names of. The list of injuries included broken limbs, internal injuries, lacerations, and even a severed ear from one poor man. I can't imagine lying in a heap of people, listening to the screams and the terror, and not knowing if I would make it out of the situation alive. It's awful. Despite the tragedy, the Our Lady of Victory's church was completed in September of that same year, and the building still stands in Harrington Park, New Jersey today. Now, when I do a story, I always research farther and check other sources to see what happened to the people after the event was over, or maybe what their lives were like before anything happened to them. Now, I wanted to know more about the two ladies who lost their lives, but as I'll explain, that's not always as easy as you'd think it should be, and most of that comes because of poor communication. Kind of like the incorrect headline about the Titanic we talked about earlier. This article listed the women's names as Mrs. Fritz Elkhart of Hillsdale, New Jersey, and 43-year-old Mrs. Nicholas Odegon of Westwood, New Jersey. Now, I'm going to climb up on my soapbox for a minute and complain about one of my biggest pet peeves of past generations. I hate, hate, hate the fact that women were rarely named. Even in obituaries, it's not uncommon for them to be listed as Mrs insert the husband's first and last name. It makes it really hard for genealogists and for those of us who are just nosy people to find out what their real names are. Anyway, since we only have husband's names to go by, I decided to look in the census reports first. I started with the 1910 United States Census and found a Nicholas and Mary Odignan living in the right location. Mary's age in the census would have put her as the exact age of the women who died. I kept digging and found a Mary Odignan buried in the Westwood, New Jersey Cemetery. Bingo! 
the age, the town, the names, everything matched up, right? Except it didn't. Nicholas is listed in the 1920 census as divorced rather than widowed, and Mary, who supposedly died in 1912, is still alive. She shows up in the 1920, 1930, and 1940 censuses. And that burial record I found for her, it lists her death year as 1955. Does that mean that there was another couple with the exact same names, age, and location? Or did the newspaper report the death of the wrong person and she was just one of those injured? We'll probably never know. Next, I decided to look in other newspapers to see if they'd reported any additional details. I found similar versions of the article in newspapers in DC and Baltimore and Detroit and Philadelphia, literally hundreds of others. However, those papers listed the last name of our first victim with a different spelling. It didn't really make a difference in my search though. However, those papers listed the name of the second victim as Mrs. E. H. Elkhorn rather than Mrs. Fritz Elkhart. But I couldn't find any information for that version of the second name either. The Fall River Daily Evening News out of Massachusetts listed the victim as Nicholas Ottingnan himself rather than his wife. And it lists a different town of residence for E.H. Elkhorn. When I looked in the Washington Post, we were back to Mrs. Fritz Elkhart again. Basically, that's a rough version of how I fall down rabbit holes. And it shows you that when I tell these stories on the podcast, I'm going to give you the most accurate information I can. But there are no guarantees that it's going to be completely accurate, especially when we're talking about information that's more than 100 years old. But don't worry, I won't bore you with all of those minute details in future stories. Just know that it's not always clear. And just know that something tragic happened in Harrington Park, New Jersey on April 14th. 1912. For my next story, I stuck with the Washington Times. Sharing the front page with the story of the Titanic is a crazy story that's local to Washington, D.C. This headline from April 15, 1912 reads, Woman shot down by wife of her son. Um, what? Now, I feel I need to add a disclaimer here because mothers-in-law always get a bad rap. I have a great mother-in-law and I wouldn't trade in my in-laws, so I got really lucky. The woman this article is about didn't get so lucky. The article doesn't say what day everything took place, but I think it's okay to assume it happened the day before the article was printed. Rosie Paget is a 21-year-old woman who was about to celebrate her fifth wedding anniversary to Charles Paget? Yes, that means she got married when she was only 16 years old. That morning, Rosie is at home when suddenly her mother-in-law shows up. Now, one article lists the mother-in-law's name as Olive Souter, and another article lists her name as Mary Souter. So, for the sake of not knowing, I'm going to refer to her as Mrs. Souter. Mrs. Souter was 44 years old and she did not get along with her daughter-in-law. Like, at all. Mrs. Souter loved to show up unannounced at Rosie's house and use, quote, abusive and threatening language. 
That morning, another woman is in the dining room with Rosie and Mrs. Souter. Her name is Mamie Putnam, and she lived with Rosie. I tried, but I could not figure out what Rosie and Mamie's relationship was like. It might have been that Mamie was a family friend, a relative, or maybe she was the housekeeper. I really don't know. Supposedly, though, that morning's fight with Mrs. Souter was about Mamie's 10-year-old brother and whether or not he should come live at the pageant home, too. Rosie is getting frustrated with the fight, and she keeps telling Mrs. Souter to leave. But Mrs. Souter tells her she can't order her out of her own son's home. I'll note here that never in any of the articles I read does it mention Rosie's husband's reaction to the events. His name is given once, and that's about it. We don't really know anything about him. Okay, back to the story. So, Rosie and Mrs. Souter are fighting, and things start to escalate when Mrs. Souter refuses to leave. What does Rosie do? She hits Mrs. Souter with her fist. Yes, friends, you heard that right. Rosie punched her mother-in-law. Not to be outdone, Mrs. Souter retaliates and punches Rosie back. At this point, Rosie is completely fed up with this situation. She stomps up the stairs and comes back with a gun. Now, this isn't just any gun. It's an old Civil War gun that was owned by Charles Kerper. Who is that? Well, Charles Kerper is Mrs. Souter's father. Rosie aims the gun at Mrs. Souter and again tells her to leave her home. Mrs. Souter tries to calm things down at this point and puts her hand on Rosie's arm. She says, don't shoot me, Rosie. But the gun goes off and Mrs. Souter is hit just above her right breast. <laughs> Mrs. Souter is terrified, doesn't know what else is going to happen, and immediately stumbles out of the house in search of help. Rosie is freaked out about what she just did, insists it was an accident that the gun just went off, and then she aims the gun at her own head. Mamie is still in the room and had witnessed the whole thing. At this point, she jumps into action, grabs the gun from Rosie, and then leaves the room to go hide it. Sadly, Mamie Putnam wasn't the only witness to the crime. Rosie's three-year-old son, William, was in the room. He watched his mother shoot his grandmother. How awful is that? Anyway, Mrs. Souter goes to the hospital and Rosie goes to jail where she spends her fifth wedding anniversary the next day. Thankfully, Mrs. Souter survived and Rosie was just charged with assault with a dangerous weapon. In October of that same year, a judge lets Rosie off on probation and the matter is closed. She and her husband stay together at least through the 1930s since they're still together on the census reports but by 1940, her husband is married to someone else and Rosie is living with their son. I can't help but wonder if their divorce had something to do with the mother-in-law. My last story for the day comes from the Houston Post. This article was reprinted in quite a few newspapers, even though it's a teeny tiny one paragraph blurb. This story is about a hot air balloon accident in Switzerland. Apparently, a hot air balloon called the St. Gotthard had just completed a flight with a pilot 
and three passengers somewhere over Switzerland. I'm sure it was a lovely flight because Switzerland is gorgeous, right? Anyway, as the St. Gotthard tried to land, a huge gust of wind suddenly picked it up and tossed it against a rock. The jolt from the collision tipped the basket over and dumped out passengers and the sandbags used to weigh the balloon down. With the balloon's heavy load suddenly gone, it took off like, well, like a balloon, and quickly soared higher and higher and higher until it reached heights of at least 15,000 feet. And then the balloon disappeared into the clouds. Now, the loss of the balloon was pretty devastating for the company, I'm sure, but there was an even bigger problem. You see, when the basket tipped over and dumped out passengers, one of them didn't fall out. Before the last man could get out on his own, the balloon shot up into the sky. Now, the article made it very clear that the passenger left behind had no flying experience whatsoever. Our headline reads, Aerial Tyro lost in clouds in balloon, carrying passenger totally ignorant of handling aircraft. Swiss gas bag sword. Friends, that's where the article ends. It didn't tell us if the totally ignorant passenger landed somewhere, if he's still in the clouds, or if he's even alive. There were more words, I think, in the headline than the entire article itself. I searched for a conclusion to the story in newspapers on later dates and tried other sources too, but try as I might, I could not find a conclusion to this story. My German isn't great, so I couldn't look in Swiss papers. There might have been something there. I'm not sure. For now, we'll just hope our Swiss friend made it out of the balloon safely and didn't land on top of the Matterhorn or in Lake Geneva. If he didn't make it, I hope he at least enjoyed the views of one of the prettiest countries I've ever been to during his last moments. On a lighter note, some of my favorite things to look at in old newspapers are the advertisements. Sometimes the ads are for strange contraptions or questionable concoctions or unbelievably cheap products by today's standards. The New York Times of April 15, 1912 did not disappoint with many ads for department stores with names we'd still recognize today. On page two, there is an ad for union suits. If you're like me and you're completely clueless when it comes to fashion, you'll have no idea what a union suit is. I had to look it up. Apparently, a union suit is basically long underwear. It's something that started with women and then soon became popular with men. So if you were alive on the day the Titanic sank, you could have bought yourself a lovely new race union suit for either $1 or $5, depending on how fancy your tastes were. Friends, thanks for joining me for this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the stories as much as I did. Check in next week for more stories from Additional History, headlines you probably missed. <laughs>